Hello and welcome to season two of the HLEP podcast by the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project. My name is Ben Ho. I'm a three-year-old Harvard Law School and I'm your host. This season of the HLEP podcast is made possible by our sponsors, Cooley, Orc, and Femmican West. On today's episode, we pick up where we left off in season one with Jason Kent, the co-chair of Cooley's Public Companies Practice Group. Jason discusses what it's like to advise public companies as they mature, years after the IPO event. We also learn about the types of legal issues mature public companies face as they encounter greater visibility in the public spotlight and how lawyers help such clients navigate them. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to stay up to date for the latest episodes. All right, let's get started. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the HLEP Podcast. Hi, Ben. Great to be here. Thank you for having me today. Well, Jason, you know what? We've been talking about this episode for almost half a year now, ever since my first conversation with you this summer. So I'm excited to finally get into it. Yeah, me too. So why don't we start by having you tell us about what you do and the kind of clients that you represent? Sure, Ben. I'm a partner in the New York office of Cooley. And my practice focuses primarily on mid to late stage private companies, all the way through public companies. And I work with those companies across all of their corporate needs, public and private offerings and securities transactions, board and corporate governance advice, SEC reporting and disclosure. M&A deals, employment and compensation arrangements. I'm typically the main point person for my client teams, but I work extensively with other team members across our various practice groups at Cooley. And from an industry perspective, it's pretty wide as well. I work with life sciences companies, technology companies, retail, food and beverage. Um, As I mentioned earlier, though, it's primarily public companies that I'm working with at this stage in my career, Mm -hmm. but it's not exclusively. I still do work with some private companies. The way we think about it at Cooley is there's a lot of us that have majors and minors, just like you would Mm. have in college. And my major is definitely public companies, but I still have a minor in emerging companies and private company work. Oh, that's that's, that's a really cool analogy, majors and minors. So if you have to kind of divide the percentages or what, how how much of your major takes up most of your day and how much does your minor take up your day? Yeah, I would say it varies from day to day based on what different clients have going on. But on average, it's probably 75% public companies to 25% private companies on any given day. Oh, that's interesting. Well, can you tell us about your story? How did you get here doing what you do? And, you know, what were the major checkpoints along the way? Yeah, sure. So I was born and raised in San Diego, California. I did not come from a family of lawyers. I actually come from a family of grocery store operators. Um, my grandpa and my dad had a family business, which was grocery stores. I worked there starting as a young kid. I can still bag groceries pretty much better than anybody. Um, but my mom was a legal secretary. And I think it was that exposure that caused me to originally want to explore a career in the law. Um, I went to college. I applied sort of immediately to law school. Um, I was originally going to take some time off between law school and um, college because I, I got waitlisted, frankly, at um, my first choice law school, which was Stanford. Mm. And I called Stanford and I said, um, what are my chances of getting off the waitlist? You know, where's my rank? And they said, well, we don't, we don't force rank people. We do demographic matching. So somebody has to drop out of the class that sort of fits mm. the same profile as you do. I said, okay, well, how often does that happen? And they said, well, it hasn't happened in the last four years. So, wow. <laughs> so I, I pretty much wrote it off um, and I was ready to start a new job and LA uh, and take a couple of years off. And, and I got a call in mid-April saying I was in. And so I ended up going to Stanford at the, at the very last minute. Um, 
I graduated from Stanford in 98 and I started working at a, at a regional law firm in San Diego. I ended up switching over to Cooley as a second year associate in 2000. Um, and that's where I've been ever since. Wow. So I'd love to hear, Jason, what were you like in law school? What were some of the things you got involved with, favorite classes, things like that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like I went to law school at a time, Ben, when law schools were much less equipped to teach mm. corporate law um, and transactional law. It was much more focused on, on litigation. And the odd part was, that's what I thought I wanted to do when I was in law school. Um, I loved classes like securities regulation and business associations, all courses that are um, sort of analogous and, and helpful for what I do now. But I was also really interested in constitutional law and, and federal litigation. I think I was even like a TA in a federal litigation cast. Mm. The firm that I started with in 1998 had an interesting process for their first year associates. Um, they required all first year associates to do both business and litigation work for the first year. Wow. And frankly, if it hadn't been that way, I would probably be a litigator now. But in, in doing both different types of work, I realized about halfway through that first year that I really wanted to be a business lawyer. I really wanted to be a corporate transactions lawyer. And mm -hmm. so I decided to switch into that practice. And that's what I've been doing ever since, including at Cooley. Well, so when you switched over to the corporate side, was it quite clear to you that, okay, I want to work with public companies or did that kind of come down later on? That's also something that happened gradually and, and over time. And, and part of this was that back in the late 90s when I started practicing, we weren't as specialized as we were now. Now I feel like mm -hmm. it's more clear cut. Like we have public companies lawyers and we have capital markets lawyers and we have ECVC lawyers. But back when I started practicing, it was very much a generalist practice. Like you learned how to be a corporate lawyer and you did everything for that company, whether it was an ECVC financing or whether it was an IPO or whether it was a public company M&A deal. Um, so that's how I started out, really being a generalist. But what happened over time is that the clients that I was working with um, began maturing, right? Mm. They, they raised money as private companies. They went public. They continued on as public companies. And what I found was that I really liked the increased complexity of navigating those sort of more complicated securities and governance issues that public companies face. Mm -hmm. um, and I also liked the higher, the higher stakes, larger transactions, you know, greater visibility and exposure for boards and management to their decisions. And so over time, that's when I really started transitioning into more of a public company specialty. Although, as I mentioned earlier, I still do a fair amount of the private company work as well. Oh, that's awesome. And it certainly sets us up for the next point, right? So if we fast forward to the present, Jason, you're the co-chair of Cooley's public companies practice now. And from a career development perspective, was becoming a leader in this practice group something you consciously pursued? Because I imagine this doesn't just happen overnight. There are people listening today that may envision something like that for themselves one day. So curious to hear, how does something like that happen? How did you decide you wanted it? Yeah, I'm not sure I would refer to it then as conscious pursuit. Mm. I think in a way it was just sort of being in the right place at the right time. So, so I, I, had, I had built this practice, which was public company focused. I'd been doing that and had been with Cooley for 20 plus years. I relocated to New York from San Diego in the middle of 2021 in the midst of this major strategic initiative that we have as a firm to build out our public companies practice, particularly on the East Coast. Mm. And there was a vacancy in the co-chair role for our, our public companies practice. And so um, our board 
saw fit to, to put me in that slot. Um, and it's actually been really exciting. I mean, it, there's been a, a, there's a tremendous need for strategic thinking in the role of our public companies co-chair. Right now, Cooley as a firm has over 250 public companies where we're the primary outside securities and governance council. Wow. And we see that expanding even more in the coming years. Um, so I don't think there was a conscious pursuit of it. You know, maybe it was something unconscious. Maybe it was the, the stars sort of aligned and, and put me in the right place to be selected to do that. But I'm thankful for the opportunity and really excited to have the opportunity to help build uh, this practice with my partners here at Cooley. That's awesome to hear. Well, right place at the right time it reflects a lot of the theme that we've discussed on this podcast so far. Now, Jason, I'd love to hear, can you tell us about how working with mature public companies at a place like Cooley compares to maybe other firms like a Cravath, a Davis Polk, one of those traditional white shoe firms? The way I would differentiate Cooley is that we are first and foremost a company's practice. And, and by that, I mean that as lawyers at Cooley, we represent companies at all different parts of their life cycle, but that includes when they're public companies. And we represent those companies and do their transactions as opposed to coming the other way and doing the transactions for the mm -hmm. companies, which is how I think more about like a Davis Polk or a Cravath, tremendous firms, you know, very, very good at doing transactions, but, but not really as sort of companies focused as I think we would think we are here at mm -hmm. Cooley. We work with clients, as I said, across that whole continuum of their life cycle from formation and startup to venture capital financing, to IPO, continuing on once they become public companies. In some cases, it's the same lawyer that sort of bridges all of those gaps. Mm. In others, we have like a seamless handoff between teams through our ECVC lawyers, to our capital markets lawyers, to our public company lawyers. What I find most rewarding uh, and differentiating about my own practice is that long-term relationship. It's not just sort of mm. jumping from deal to deal but really having the opportunity to work shoulder to shoulder with a management team of a company on a day-to-day -day basis for a, for a really long time. There's one example I'll, I'll give you is that I have one public company client that I started working with as a third year associate in 2001 when they did their series mm -hmm. A financing. And I continued to work with that company. We took them public in 2013. They're now going on 10 years as a, as a public company. So I've been working with just that company for 22 years. Um, in a, in a way, I think of it as like another one of my children. Like it, I worked with that wow. company sort of all the way through childhood and adolescence and now adult. It's actually an interesting analogy. I mean, I know your last season focused on sort of the process from startup to an exit. Yes. But when you look at, at an IPO and when you become a public company, it, it's not so much in my view an exit, but more of like a graduation into the next wow. phase of life, right? So my, my oldest... I've got three kids. My oldest is 19 and he's a, he's a first year in college. And once he graduates in three years, um, hopefully, uh, but once he graduates, he'll move into the working world, right? And he'll start developing his career and he'll have all sorts of new complexities and challenges when he does that relative to those that he had when he was a child or an adolescent or a college student. And I think it's not at all dissimilar for public companies, right? Mm. You go through this IPO process, you become a public company, but then there's all of these new sort of challenges that you have to face um, that are entirely different in some cases than those that you had to struggle with uh, and overcome when you're a private company. That's a really good analogy. So it's not an exit. It's a graduation to another phase of your corporate life cycle then. That's exactly the way that we think about it. 
So Jason, that's awesome. I can't wait to get into the meat of the episode right here. So you already mentioned last season, we, we learned about the growing pains of private companies, right? As they mature with Sapita, Musicani, and then eventually what legal issues companies face after the IPO event on Life After Exit with Nielsen Yu. On today's episode, we're going to learn about how things evolve for maturing or mature public companies several years or even decades after the IPO event, right? So firstly, can you describe the kind of players that make it to this point? What are the characteristics of a maturing or mature public company? Yeah, Ben, I guess I would answer that in two ways. Um, one is that from a business standpoint, these companies are typically a lot bigger, right? So they continue to grow and that growth is either like organic growth, right? They're just building, they're hiring people, they're you know, developing their own business or it's more strategic type growth. Like they're buying other companies or they're combining with other companies. So you're dealing with a company that is a lot larger, both in size and scope, you know, employees, locations, mm -hmm. you know, complexity of their business. These are companies that typically have um, increasing revenue and, and maybe more predictable revenue, right? So the companies are going to be called upon to more frequently um, put out public guidance about what their mm -hmm. revenue is going to be. Their investors are going to be looking very carefully at whether that guidance has been met or exceeded or, or not met, right? Um, and then these are also companies that because of their larger size, you know, they have to put into place additional procedures and, and policies and processes to try to manage that growth. And there's a tension there because especially if you're, you know, an emerging growth company that could be very entrepreneurial and very fast moving and very nimble, a lot of times people sort of chafe at these, you know, larger sort of restrictions that you have now or processes yeah. that you have to go through. So those are some of the characteristics that I would look at from a business standpoint. Um, from a legal standpoint, I think, there's also those additional layers of um, sophistication, right? Ex expanded and increased sophistication. When you are a company that's a private company or when you're going public, um, you can have many times like no in-house lawyers at all, just rely entirely on your outside counsel. Or you might have a single general counsel or a couple of in-house lawyers. And when you see more mature public companies, these are companies that have really built up, in a lot of cases, their internal legal departments, right? So in addition to having a GC, you might have an associate GC for M&A or an associate GC for litigation or for privacy, right? Um, and when you get to even larger companies, you can have in-house legal departments, frankly, that look like law firms of their own, like small or even mm. mid-sized law firms, up to hundreds, if not more, lawyers with, with great degrees of specialization. So, wow. um, so those are a couple of the changes that you would see with a mature public company relative to sort of a brand new public company just finishing up with their IPO. Okay, well, that, that's incredible. So if you have to estimate, how likely are companies to make it to such a stage? That's a really interesting question, Ben, because I think it depends on a lot of different factors. Mm. Um, if you look at companies that are newly public companies, let's just say they're reasonably well-funded. They've just done an IPO. Mm -hmm. They have some cash, right? Um, really, the question is, are, are they going to make it five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road? And what would prevent them from doing that? Um, one of the circumstances that we see a lot is companies getting acquired, right? Just because mm -hmm. you've become a public company doesn't mean you can't be acquired anymore. And I think particularly in companies like the life sciences industry, where companies are going public prior to having 
a product that they can actually market and sell to patients. Those are companies that large pharma companies are looking at as acquisition targets and may ultimately wow. buy and take out within, you know, in some cases, the first, you know, three to five years following their IPO. Um, there's other companies that ultimately decide that they don't want to be acquired, right? And that they want to continue to grow and build. And if you can think about this, the larger some companies become, the less likely it is that they're going to be acquired because that means mm -hmm. there's a smaller universe of companies that are out there that are able to acquire those companies. So, so it's a little hard to put a specific um, percentage on it. Um, but, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, maybe of, of every 10 companies that go newly public, if you look 10 years later, um, you know, maybe, maybe half of them are still public. Um, 50 to 70 percent with the others being acquired or, you know, in some cases there's companies that don't make it right. And so they, mm. they end up going out of business. Wow. OK, so you know, these are companies that sort of can take a punch and still survive. But, you know, they're still not, I guess, uh, insulated from market forces. Some of them can still be acquired, et cetera. And those who can last will keep going. That's right. That's exactly right. OK, well, and, and I guess this IPO event is, is a big deal because if you can last a test and make it onto the other side, then your chances of, of continuing on seems to be much higher based on the numbers you've given us. I think so. I mean, part of the reason for that is that there's also one of the reasons that you go public is there's, there's increased funding opportunities available mm. to, to those companies. They, those funding opportunities might not always be on the best terms, um, but, but there are, they are ways for companies to continue to stay alive. That's great. So, you know, moving on to, say, the lawyering side, what kind of practice areas are involved when lawyers advise these clients? Well, I know when you uh, talk to some of my colleagues from the ECVC perspective, mm -hmm. uh, they talked a lot about when you're an ECVC lawyer, you have to have a really broad practice, right? You have yeah. to be thinking about a lot of issues and, and topics. What I would say is when you're a public company's lawyer, there's still a lot of breadth to the practice, yeah. but there's more specialization and complexity in each of those areas. So let me just give mm -hmm. you an example. Um, if you're an ECVC lawyer, you know, you, you may work on a venture financing where you're selling Series C preferred stock to a small group of investors. And, and because it's set up that way, it qualifies for an exemption from registration. You don't have to file a registration statement with the SEC. When you're a public company, um, the benefit of being a public company is you can sell your stock publicly, right? You don't have those same, you don't have those same sort of restrictions on the investors you can reach. But there's this overlay where now you have to comply with the securities laws for a registered offering, and that can have some complexity of it in and of itself. The same thing on like an M&A transaction, where if you were an ECVC lawyer and your company is being sold, um, you know, you're probably going to work on that yourself, right? Um, you're going to work with that management team through the acquisition agreement and the disclosure schedules and everything that you need for that deal. When you're a public company, because of the size of the transaction and the the visibility of the transaction, frankly, to shareholders and plaintiff's lawyers and the like, there's mm. some greater exposure associated with that to your board in particular. And so if I was going to work on an M&A transaction for a public company, I would typically do it alongside one of my M&A partners like Kevin Cooper. Um, and we would, we would do that together because that's sort of all Kevin does, right? So we would tag team that sort of a deal. Great. So Say you're an associate at a standard law firm um, and you work and you advise public companies' clients. What kind of practice areas would you be involved with? Like, is it capital markets, et cetera? So the way that Cooley's practices are set up is, is we do have 
a public company's practice group. And in our view, that really covers sort of soup to nuts, all the different things you do for public companies, mm-hmm. the governance advice and the securities law advice, like the 1934 Act advice on the company's public filings, 10K, 10Q, proxy statement, et cetera, as well as the transactions that that company does, public offering, M&A transaction, et cetera. Um, other firms view it a little bit differently, and they, they call it capital markets, and their public companies group is a little bit differently. But I think mm-hmm. at least at our firm, if you're a junior associate and you are staffed on a public company client team, um, you're going to be working on a wide range of things. You're going to be doing a review of the 10K filing. You're going to be helping with their directors and officers questionnaires, and then ultimately feeding that information to the proxy statement that they work on. If the company does a follow-on offering of common stock, you're going to be helping the company with its due diligence production and reviewing its roadshow presentation to make sure that it's appropriately backed up factually and it's consistent with its public statements, right? Wow. So all of those things are are within the scope of what you would be doing for that public company client. It's pretty broad, pretty broad practice. Wow, that's awesome. And you know, you shared it a little bit earlier. So it it sounds like um maybe in an ECVC practice, emerging companies practice, it, it can get more general and then it becomes more specialized for public companies as they deal with more complex issues. So I'd love to ask, in what ways does a lawyer's relationship with such clients change over time? I guess cradle to graduation. You know, there's some ways that it changes, Ben, and, and others that it, it very much stays the same. I think one of the nice things about building those long-term relationships with clients as their primary outside counsel is that you really do uh, become viewed as like a ex officio member of their management team, right? Mm. You have a long tenure with the company. You sort of know their history. Um, you, you, you understand, you know, sort of the issues that the company faces and can exercise judgment um, and really cross into being as much of a business advisor as you are a, a legal advisor. And that doesn't really change. Um, from mm. being a private company to being a public company, right? There's still issues that come up. Um, not all of them are black and white. In fact, I think, you know, few of them are black and white. There's always some different gradients of gray, right? And so, so you're looked at as the company's outside advisor to help the company's management team and board make the decision that's the best for the company and its shareholders. And, and again, that's sort of consistent, you know, day over day. Um, but otherwise, you know, you do, if you are somebody with a practice that spans both private companies and IPOs and public companies, um, you do have to sort of adjust your thinking a little bit, right? Mm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, public companies face a lot more complexity in terms of the um, SEC regulations and stock exchange regulations and other sort of, um, you know, environments that they operate in. And so it does take sort of an enhanced knowledge of all of those different regulations relative to, you know, what they have to face when they're, uh, you know, a, a private company and a, a, a little bit smaller and, and aren't subject to all of those same sort of, you know, public facing restrictions. Oh, that is interesting. And I guess to pick up on something you mentioned at the beginning, uh, when you started at Cooley all those years ago and you kind of grew up in, in the law firm along with your clients, I'm guessing if you continue with these clients, you also have to grow in these areas of specialization too to, to continue being that legal counsel. That's true. Yeah. And 
in a way, Ben, I, I mean, I am a bit of a, you know, I hate to say dinosaur, but I think I am a bit of a dinosaur <laughs> because I, I do still have that generalist practice. Mm. And I think that as a whole, we are moving to a place where people are becoming a little bit more specialized. For example, mm. we have a group within Cooley that we call the PCAT, Public Company Advisory Team. And that's a group of lawyers that specializes solely in 1934 Act securities reporting and governance. We have a lot of our sort of former SEC people, people who were formerly at the SEC in that group. And that's just what they love to do sort of, you know, day in, day in and day out. Um, but I, I still, I, I'll go back to the, to the earlier concept of having a major and a minor. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of associates about, about doing that, right? And about mm. not being sort of so heavily specialized that they can't still get experience and get reps on other sorts of deals. My own view is that um, I'm a better public companies lawyer because I've done IPOs and because I've done private company venture financings and vice mm. versa, right? Just because you have the broader perspective. So, so I do think there's a trend towards specialization, um, but I hope it doesn't I hope it doesn't completely go um, towards specialization because I do think there are some benefits to having that more general approach. Great. Well, put a pin, let's put a pin in that. I'm going to definitely ask you for some advice for people who want to transition into this practice area, but let's get into the, the meat of the legal issues. Can you give us an idea about the range of legal issues and challenges, you know, such clients are likely to face? Yeah. So uh, I think um, a lot of the enhancement of issues that are faced by public companies has to do mm. with visibility, right? Visibility because public companies are required to disclose their financials and make disclosures about their business to the public on a regular basis as required by the SEC. So there's a whole set of regulations that dictate what have to be what has to be disclosed, but there's also this sort of overarching principle that if the company has material information about its business, that information needs to be disclosed to the public, right? Hmm. So that's something you just don't have as a as a private company, but you do as a public company. And so there's there's constantly this overlay of, you know, what have we disclosed? What do we need to disclose? How are we disclosing it? And are we doing all of this in a way that's sort of consistent with what the SEC requires. Mm. And then something that comes from that disclosure, that enhanced disclosure, is, is a lot more focus, right? You have public company investors out there who are reading those disclosures mm. and who are um, potentially taking a more active or aggressive role with respect to the company. You have, um, you have lawyers out there as part of the plaintiff's bar who are looking at the disclosures that the company is making and seeing if there's an opportunity to potentially make a claim against the company because they view the disclosures as being sort of deficient in some way, or they view oh. the disclosures as being indicative of the company making a misstep on some, you know, sort of legal requirement. So, so it's that disclosure and then the implications of that disclosure that just sort of puts you in a bit of a different, um, a different world when you're a public company relative to a private company. Right. I just took securities regulation in the fall. So this is still fresh, but basically because public companies are raising money from public investors, we want to make sure that they have as much information to make decisions as the company insiders, right? That's exactly right. I mean, the SEC's overarching principle is that um, companies shouldn't be selectively disclosing information mm. to certain investors. 
for certain analysts. Everybody should be on a level playing field. So there's even this SEC regulation FD fair disclosure, which you may have learned about in your class. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's the regulation that says if a company makes a disclosure of material information, there are certain channels that the company's required to do that through. You have to do a press release or a Form 8K, or you can do it on a, on a webcast or a call, but only if you announce mm-hmm. that to the public in advance. The whole idea is all investors are on a level level playing field, whether it's a very sophisticated institutional investor or sort of a mom and pop investor. Everybody should have access to the same information at the same time. Right. And if you don't disclose it, I guess on an equal playing field, that's when you become vulnerable to suits, things like that. Yeah, there's there's actually been a number of sort of fairly well-known SEC enforcement actions on regulation FD in particular, mm-hmm. right? So, so the SEC is out there to mandate the sorts of disclosures that have to be made and mandate in some cases the sort of governance practices public companies have right. to follow, but they also have an active enforcement uh, group, which is there to you know litigate yeah. uh, and bring civil actions or in some cases criminal actions if companies violate those rules. Yeah, well, I tell you, sticking with the theme of the public spotlight. Um, so, Jason, in our first season, we learned that startups and VC investors are they're usually seeking capital and investments with the goal of eventually going public one day or or some kind of lucrative exit event in the future they get acquired. But in contrast, you know, mature public companies, you know, they're reporting earnings every quarter, and and this is just going forward, right? How does this change the vision and focus of such companies? Yeah, this is a great question, Ben, because there's a real tension there. Mm-hmm. VC investors sort of by their nature have longer term investment horizons, right? It's sort of inherent yeah. in the word venture capital, right? Um, and so, you know, and that's not, it's not an indefinite time horizon, but it's a time horizon that gives the company some flexibility to be able to take more chances, even if that means operating at a loss for some period of time. And yeah. really making decisions that are based on the longer term as opposed to the shorter term or the medium term. Once you become a public company, you no longer have control over your investor base anymore. Becoming a public company means your shares are publicly traded. So, yeah. so they can be acquired by, by any investor. And a lot of those investors no longer have that flexibility to really sort of do things for the longer term because a number of their investors may be looking for like a more predictable rate of return mm. or a you know, shorter term increase in valuation. And so that's why you get that tension between wanting to make strategic decisions as say a management team or a board that you think is gonna benefit the company in the long run, but having investors that might not want you to do that because it's gonna cause the company to have a short term loss and the value of mm. their investment to decrease in the short term. Oh, that's very interesting. So these quarterly report pressures kind of limit the company's abilities to take risks, so to say? I, I think that's, that's one way to look at it. I, I, I'm not sure it's so much just the reporting of the information, but more, more investor perspective, right? It's just there's so much, it goes back to what I said earlier about the visibility uh, that investors have about how companies are doing. Everything's out there. Mm. And everybody's sort of seeing it in real time. And you may have investors that are less forgiving than a VC investor who sort of understands, yes, it's going to take three to five years to accomplish that. Oh, interesting. Well, I thought on the theme of shareholders, uh, shareholder compositions and pressures, can you tell us about these shareholders, right? How does the composition of shareholders change from, you know, let's say pre-IPO to immediate post-IPO stages and then to, to where we are now in a mature stage? Sure. So... I think with many companies, particularly venture-backed companies that are 
going public, their shareholder base immediately before the IPO is not going to be all that meaningfully different from the shareholder base immediately after the IPO, mm. with the exception of the shares that they actually sell to the public. Where you really might start seeing a change is in the period of time after the lockup agreements expire. I think you've probably mm. talked before about the lockup agreement in an IPO, which restricts your existing shareholders from selling their shares for six months after the offering. It's a very typical term. Once you get six months out, you may see your legacy investors, the VC investors, et cetera, start selling off their shares, trying mm -hmm. to you know, reduce their exposure to the company or diversify, sometimes sell out entirely. And so at that time is really when you see the switch from a more you know, sort of VC-focused stockholder base to a more traditional institutional investor stockholder base. Because those are investors that are buying shares either on the open market or buying shares in the IPO or in subsequent offerings that the company does. So what does that mean? Well, um, on the one hand, institutional investors, as I mentioned earlier, might have a little bit of a different focus, like a shorter or medium term focus compared mm -hmm. with the VC investors. Um, and frankly, they also have different views about governance and how the company should be managed. Um, there are two uh, sort of advisory firms out there. One of them is called ISS, Institutional Shareholder Services. The other one is called Glass-Lewis. There's others, but ISS and Glass-Lewis are the two biggest ones. And they sort of exist for the purpose of reviewing public companies and making, in, uh, making recommendations to institutional investors as to how those institutional investors should vote on the proposals that those companies are making at their annual meetings. And ISS and Glass-Lewis and, and the institutional investors may have different views about things like how the company's board should be comprised, whether the board is elected on an annual basis, or whether you have what we call a classified board, which is only a third of the board is up every year, mm. or various other things like ESG policies and the like. So there's just a different set of rules, as it were, that you play by when you look at your investor group as a public company as opposed to a private company. Oh, wow. And I, I imagine you have many more shareholders too once you become a public company. So you have to consider maybe a more diversity of different, uh, I guess, priorities. And sometimes I'm guessing these priorities might not actually align. They might be hostile to each other. There can definitely be differing views among <laughs> shareholders as to how things should be run at the company. And frankly, most public companies um, do engage on a regular basis with their, with their shareholder group. In the, the group of more mature public companies that we're talking about, typically there'll be like a dedicated investor relations function. There seems mm -hmm. to be somebody who is in charge of IR at the company or a group of people. And those people will be in regular conversation with their shareholders and trying to receive that feedback and understand sort of, you know, how their shareholders are feeling and what they think about the direction of the company. So can you take us to, say, that room where, because here's what I'm imagining, right? So in a, in a venture capital-backed startup, you, you're going to have VC representatives on the board. But maybe the board's like seven people, you know, at some different VCs with different board seats. So it feels kind of easy to be talking to the people in front of you. But now, mature public company, you know, you're, you're likely going to have more anonymous shareholders. So you mentioned this relationship between the IR and, and the, the representatives of these shareholders. What's it like? Is it really just one individual representing everyone? So there's a couple of different ways 
that a board of directors of a public company would receive feedback from shareholders. One of them is just through the sort of normal course engagement that we talked about, where the company's IR department would be engaging with shareholders, the company's CFO and CEO in some cases would be having conversations with shareholders, receiving that feedback and and then sort of flowing it through if needed or as needed to the board. The other circumstance that happens sometimes is you have um, you have investors that decide for one reason or the other that they want to take their case directly to the board. Um, and they'll, in some cases, write a letter to the board. Um, in other cases, they will you know, make a public statement or even attempt to propose a particular matter for action by the company at its annual stockholder meeting, right? Wow. And so, so those are more active um, interactions with the board, but, but it is something that you find from time to time when you're a public company. Oh, that is interesting. So even the shareholder disputes could be even more public, which will set us up really nicely for the activist investor discussion. Um, so, okay, so it seems like every other week, Wall Street Journal reports that, you know, activist investors like Carl Icahn, Elliott Management, they're buying up significant stakes in a company with the intention to create change. You know, I, and I would love to ask you about that. But firstly, before we go into too much of this, in case anyone hasn't heard of the term, can you define what an activist investor is? Yeah, I think you, I, I think you pretty much nailed it, Ben. I mean, it, it's an investor that takes a position in the company with the goal of trying to influence the board or the management team uh, to either do something or to stop doing something, right? Because usually one or the other. And they have different tools to do that. It can range from trying to place pressure on the board through you know, private communications with the board, letters and the mm -hmm. like. Um, it can range from putting out a public statement. It can range from you know, trying to actually replace directors of the company or even you know, take over equity ownership in the company. So, mm -hmm. uh, but that's ultimately what an activist is. Wow. So, uh, okay. So, what are some of the common scenarios that that public companies are going to face from such activist investors? Then, yeah. Again, it's a range. Sometimes you'll have an activist investor um, who's more focused on a business issue. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, you know, a public company has four hundred million dollars on its balance sheet in cash, and um, the activist investor thinks that it's in the best interest of the shareholders for that company to turn around and distribute that cash out to the shareholders as a dividend, mm. as opposed to taking that cash and redeploying it in its business going forward. Um, there's other situations where activist shareholders believe that a company um, should be sold to maximize its value, as opposed to continuing to operate its business. Um, and then there's still others, especially in recent years, that, that are more you know, sort of ESG-focused, right? Mm. Activists who don't necessarily want the company to distribute cash or to sell itself, but to make more disclosure about its, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, um, or adopt a policy about um, its political contributions and provide more disclosure about that. Oh, that's interesting. So, are these positions or agendas always hostile to to the managers of the company, or are they sometimes friendly? It depends. I mean, often there can be common ground that a particular topic needs to be addressed. Um, but maybe the activist in the board um, feels differently about how we should get there, how you should get there, the time period in which you can get there. Um, I mean, in all cases, you know, boards of directors of public companies in, 
accordance with their fiduciary duties, do have to think about what's being proposed and whether what's being proposed is, in their view, in the best interest of the company and all of its stockholders, right? So, mm. so there are some times when you have um, engagement by a board with an activist stockholder um, that leads to some sort of um, you know, resolution or, or, or settlement. We're going to implement this practice or, or we're going to allow the activist to have a director, but it may not be ultimately what was requested out of the mm. gate, right? You may have a activist investor that says, you know, we want, we want three seats on the board and the settlement ends up being that they're going to get one um, or some other sort of, you know, interim resolution. Other times you can't reach a resolution and, you know, the board and the activist is just at, uh, at odds. And that's when you can have what we call a, a proxy fight, which is when wow. the activist investor actually puts up their own slate of directors at the company's annual meeting and the board puts up their own slate of directors and we see who gets the most votes. Oh, wow. So this is kind of like what you mean about the high stakes situations you're involved in at public companies. For sure. Oh, this is so interesting. So there are, there are many ways to resolve such a activist campaign. It could be friendlier ways or it could be like open hostile. Let's, let's vote over new directors. That's exactly right. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I, I think the majority of these sorts of campaigns are, are often settled. And it's mm -hmm. not as common that they do go to the full proxy fight. Of course, what we read about in the Wall Street Journal and what we see on CNBC are the ones that do go to the proxy fight because mm -hmm. those are the ones that are more visible and you know, frankly can be a bit nasty at times in terms of the public disclosures that get made about the company or about the investor. So that's really interesting. And up till now in this conversation, we've, we've discussed a lot of these, you said, visibility concerns and I guess anonymized shareholders issues. But how do companies manage or defend against such campaigns then, given all these, I guess, differing viewpoints from these shareholders? Well, there's, there's the engagement that I mentioned earlier. And I mean, I, I don't think I would ever advise any board to just completely ignore and stonewall some sort of outreach from an investor. And I, I, think, I think the first step is engaging and understanding the position that the investor has and, and gathering enough information about that position to be able to share it with the board and determine what's the right approach for, for the company. Um, the board also leans a lot on their advisors in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. they, they lean on us as their legal advisors to advise them about their fiduciary duties and how those duties apply to what's being requested. In a lot of cases, a public company reward will engage uh, an investment bank to act as a financial advisor. For example, to look at the value of the company if uh, it continues the status quo versus the value of the company if it's sold versus uh, the value of the company if it dividends out part of its cash, right? And to help understand you know, what is ultimately in the best interest of the company and all of its shareholders as opposed to just the shareholder that's making the proposal. Wow, so this is like a proactive review ongoing. It's not something you sit around and wait and suddenly you get hit by an activist campaign then. I would say that for more mature public companies, um, there is a regular practice of going through and sort of proactively thinking about you know, what the company's standalone plan is, what the environment is for activism, what sort of defenses the company has in its arsenal to be able to defend against those sorts of actions if they, if they come. 
just because it is it is something that's in the environment out there. And so it's a lot better to be prepared for these sorts of things um, than to have to face them very reactively. Oh, this is so interesting. So earlier we talked about not it's not it's not the case that every single company that immediately IPOs will eventually end up at this point. Some of them might be bought out, et cetera. So would you say that their ability to deal with these pressures is you know directly relevant to whether or not they last? I would say so. Yeah, Ben, because you know these pressures in a lot of cases can force companies to be sold or mm. distribute out their cash uh, or combine with another company. So, and again, frankly, um, that may be the right decision for that particular company. And I, I don't want to cast activist investors as as being you know inherently <laughs> bad. I mean, mm. they're they're approach may be at odds to the approach that the board wants to take, at least initially. Um, but there could be companies where it is better for the company to be sold. Okay. So uh, we talked a lot about public being in the public spotlight, shareholder compositions and pressures and activist investors. Are there any other other issues that public companies tend to face with regard to being the public spotlight? There's a couple and, and these then I think really relate to the environment that we find ourselves in today. Um, one of them is that 2022 was not the best year for our capital markets. Um, there were not a lot of IPOs for companies that were already public. It was difficult to, to raise money at an acceptable valuation. And at least as we record this today, it, it sort of remains to be seen what 2023 is going to look like. Mm. Um, so I, I think there may be some impact of the relative lack of capital in the market mm. on what happens to companies. There's a lot of companies out there that need to raise funds. And if they can't raise funds, they're going to end up being sold or they're going to end up being mm. combined with other companies or end up being shut down um, at, a, at a faster rate than maybe they would have historically. So that's one wow. thing that's sort of a trend that I think a lot of companies are dealing with right now. Another is that we've really seen, particularly in the last 12 to 18 months, an increasingly active SEC, mm. lots more regulations, lots more sort of mandates for those disclosures and governance related practices that we talked about earlier. Um, there's a long list of new SEC rules that are scheduled to become effective just this year. Um, there's a climate disclosure rule. There's a cybersecurity disclosure rule. There's um, clawbacks on executive compensation for companies that have to restate their financials. I mean, that, that list sort of goes on and on. Remains to be seen how those will fare if we end up having a change in the presidential administration and Congress, you know, over the next few years. But but for now, um, if you're a public company, those are still a lot of work and a lot wow. to grapple with in a relatively short period of time. So speaking about these trends, um, what what do you think about ESG? Is it going to continue being a force of influence? You know, how do you see us panning out? My own view is that ESG is here to stay. Um, and it's going to continue to increase in influence as a topic that companies need to be aware of. Um, one of those SEC regulations that I just talked about, the climate disclosure regulation, is sort of squarely in that category. Um, and is going to require you know, the most extensive climate-related disclosures ever required by the SEC in a very sort of prescriptive way. Even if the SEC rules get carved back, um, there's still a lot of investors out there 
that are ESG focused. Remember, I was talking earlier about the institutional investors and some of the requirements that they're imposing on the companies that they invest in. And that's irrespective of what the SEC says. Those companies are saying, look, if you want us to sort of be an investor in your company, we want you to do X, Y, and Z from an ESG standpoint. So we do think that, um, that this is going to continue to be an area of focus, SEC and otherwise. Oh, wow. So ESG is still a, a priority item on, on the agenda of many of these investors then? It is. Interesting. Well, on the flip side, Jason, what are some of the opportunities to get excited about for public companies, even in this present economic climate? Well, I'd say if you're a, if you're a larger public company with a lot of cash or with stock that has a reasonable value, you should, you should probably get ready to go shopping. You could probably pick wow. up <laughs> some good deals out there. Um, that's definitely one, one opportunity to, to get excited about. Um, look, what, what I would say, particularly when you look at our, our client base, uh, which you know, consists of a lot of sort of innovators and disruptors, is that even in an economic climate like this, um, people that are running those companies see the opportunity and not the challenge, right? And they look at this as an opportunity to consolidate or disrupt or do something else uh, entrepreneurial or innovative, even in the public company setting. When you're a you know, mature public company and no longer a startup, that sort of innovation still occurs in strategic thinking. Wow, that's very exciting. Um, you know, you've been doing this for a long time now. You've seen several economic downturns. So I'd love to hear from your point of view, how does this present economic climate, this bear market compared to previous ones? Are there any, any differences, any similarities? Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen, I guess, since I've been practicing three maybe or so. Um, and it is helpful to have that perspective, as you mentioned, because you know, I talked to a lot of our, our junior associates um, over the last year, for example, when things were not as fast as they had been historically. And um, I tried to address their concern by explaining that you know, these things are cyclical. Things slow down, things speed up again. And you know, don't be overly concerned just because you know, you're not sort of working late at night on some offering, you know, enjoy the time that you have. It's going to come back. Um, I think this, this downturn feels, at least to me, a little less severe than some of the ones in the past, particularly the, the one that, that happened after the real estate crash in, you know, sort of 07, 08, um, mm. just because that one seemed so much more permanent and you had, you know, the investment banks failing and the, you know, sort of need to, you know, for the treasury to step in and, and rescue them. We, we haven't seen any of that. We obviously have the Fed doing a lot of intervention to try to address the inflationary pressures. And there's other various and sundry concerns going on in the world that we're dealing with. Um, but we still have clients that are, even though there's not an IPO market that's really robust right now, they're still getting ready. They're still having their organizational meetings. They're still filing their registration statements confidentially so that when the market is ready to proceed, they'll be ready to go. Wow. So there's also uh, the right opportunity and the right moment to go public as well. And, and you just can remain optimistic for when the cycle starts to turn. I do. I'm an optimist by nature, but I do remain optimistic. That's great. Well, thank you for that. We'll transition to our final segment, advice for law students and I guess junior associates, actually. So 
You mentioned how this practice area tends to get more specialized. So what advice do you have for, say, law students and junior associates who are like thinking, okay, I want to be a public company's lawyer. Would you advise them to start specializing early or you know, remain generalists until a certain point? I actually do think there's a benefit then of remaining a generalist mm. for some period of time. Um, at Cooley, our associates start as generalists and they stay that way for two or three years to try to get broad exposure to a number of our different practice groups, public mm. companies, M&A, ECVC, capital markets. And it's only after that, you know, sort of third year or so where we encourage people to start thinking about picking a major and a minor, as I've talked about earlier. And I think there's a benefit of that. I mean, um, as I mentioned earlier, I thought I was going to be a litigator when I started mm. practicing. And if not for the fact that I was sort of forced to do business work at a first, as a first year, I would have never ended up being a corporate lawyer. So we can have a lot of people that come into our firm uh, who think they're going to be VC startup lawyers, right? Mm. And they may do some VC startup work and they may do some public company work and say, oh my gosh, I, you know, I had no idea this existed. I would love to do that, right? So, so I do think there's a lot of benefit to you know, staying a generalist. My advice on law school would be take securities regulation like you just did, Ben. Um, take business associate, associations, take, take an M&A course if they have those. Um, if it's possible, if you have the opportunity to to business school at your law school and you have the ability to port over and take classes at the business school, you know, try doing that as well. As, as lawyers that do what we do, you know, we often get called upon to provide a lot of practical sort of business-focused advice. And we're often asked to sort of understand fundamental financial concepts. Um, and I think having that sort of business background to the extent that you can get it is helpful as well. Great. Well, and following that, we have you know, many, many listeners here right now, might, you know, might be a 2L or 3L. They're getting ready to join a law firm as first-year associates or summer associates, or, or even like for the present first-year associates listening to this. What advice do you have for all of them? And you know, what is something you wish you knew before you even started? I'd say take a great bar trip after you graduate. <laughs> Because you really do, once you get into the workforce, it's hard to find, you know, two or three months to just go backpacking throughout Europe or, you know, sailing a boat through French Polynesia or something like that. So I definitely would say take your time and enjoy it before you start working. Um, but once you do start working, make the most of the environment that, that you're in. Um, hopefully you'll be at a firm where you get exposure to a broad range of projects, you get exposure to a broad range of people that you're working with, um, senior associates, partners. That was one of my favorite things about being a junior associate, both at my first firm and then starting as a second year associate with Cooley. We're, we're a very sort of non-siloed practice, right? So you're encouraged to work with a broad range of partners and senior associates. And it's only once you do that, when you start to develop your own style, and you can sort of pick and choose and say, I like, I like how that partner did that. I like how that partner did that. I want to sort of make that part of my own, my own practice. So I would say take advantage of those opportunities to gain exposure, both from a substantive perspective and from a personality perspective. Oh, that's great. So take a bar trip, be conscientious about building relationships, and keep an open mind because you may end up doing something you didn't expect to be interested in. You got it, Ben. Great. So Jason, final question. 
knowing everything you know now, if you could go back to law school, is there anything you would have done differently? You're going to think this is a cop out probably, but I would say no. And it's not, and it's certainly not because I did everything perfectly. In fact, I, I, I did a lot of things imperfectly. I mean, I decided that I didn't want to join the law review because I'd prefer to go coach a high school boys volleyball team in Atherton at the time when I was third year. Um, So I I didn't, I didn't make a lot of the sort of more traditional choices. um, And I made a lot of mistakes. Um, And frankly, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, I, I, I got into law school like the last week possible off the waiting list. So, so, but, but ultimately it all works out well and I'm happy where I am and I'm happy that I was able to have the journey that I had through law school and through my career so far. Um, and I would just say, you know, don't sweat it. Everything's going to work out. You're going to end up in the right place and in the right position for you. That's awesome. Jason, thank you so much. You shared such rich advice with us. I'm really thankful and I'm looking forward to our next conversation already. Absolutely. Thanks again, Ben. I feel the same way and I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to Season 2 of the HLab Podcast, proudly brought to you by Cooley, Orc, and Femmican West. We'd like to thank our sound engineer, Joe Blim, and of course, Jason, for taking the time to share his journey and thoughts with us. Join us next time for Deal Making in a Recession with Jordan Roberts of Femmican West and Morgan Beller, a general partner at NFX. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thank you and see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project, an officially recognized Harvard Law School student organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University.